Welcome to Behind the Scenes with Brian, the podcast covering everything from engineering, mining, and mine waste management to whatever else may be on our minds. Pop in your headphones and don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share. And now, here is your host, Brian Ulrich. Hey everyone, this is Behind the Scenes with Brian, and I am Brian, and I am joined today by Bill Kappel. Bill, how are you today? Good, good to be here, thanks. Good, yeah, yeah. And uh, we're recording this during the pandemic, and I hope you're able to have a more or less normal life despite the pandemic. Yeah, it's unusual, like many of the industries, some are doing better than others, and we're lucky enough to be busier than ever, so... Yeah, you know, I, I, that's the same thing I get from all the technical engineering consulting companies. They're all very busy. Yeah, so we're blessed yeah. that way, for sure. Yeah, so that's that's really encouraging. Um, so, Bill, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, your education. Sure. So, uh, I'm the president and chief meteorologist of Applied Weather Associates, and you know, we're we're a really what I consider to be a unique. Uh, and fun uh, meteorological outfit that is able to concentrate on uh, storm analysis and um, meteorological quantification that's used for very specific industries. You know, our main uh, products and outputs are used specifically for probable maximum precipitation development, uh, precipitation recurrence interval analyses, uh, rainfall quantification and time, space and magnitude that are that are provided to hydrologists and engineers so they can design and test and evaluate critical infrastructure, right? I mean, we, we deal with specifically high hazard dams, nuclear sites, mining operations, tailing storage facilities, infrastructure that can't fail, that has to be designed accurately yeah. and appropriately, right? Yeah, and, right. and our whole job is to produce those data sets and outputs from, from a meteorological perspective as accurately as possible, reduce uncertainty and reduce risk so that the engineers and hydrologists who are applying that have the best information available, are making the best decision for design, and, and hopefully, uh, most most appropriately, spending funds and allocating resources against those and, and not either over-designing or under-designing. So that, you know, that's our current process. Now, me, me particularly, um, I, I consider myself to be very, very uh, fortunate because I've only wanted to do two things my entire life since as long as I can remember. One is to be a meteorologist and the other is to play sports. And I was fortunate enough to be able to do both, right? be able to play uh, basketball through college on scholarship and also huh. participate yeah, in the, on the national team for um, a sport called team handball as part of the 1996 Summer Olympics. And then after that, finish up my degrees, get into the meteorology and and go from there. So <laughs> I'm pretty lucky in that sense. And and I, I like to think that those things come through in the work that we do and hopefully the people can can see the quality of our work and the passion that goes into it and the joy and love that we have for it. So it, it's, uh, it's it's been pretty fun so far, that's for sure. Yeah, that's the uh, interesting uh, background and combination. 
I know a lot of people uh, try to estimate a PMP, but they don't come from a meteorological background. So how does your meteorological background help you in the PMP estimation? Absolutely. No, that, that, and actually, that's a great point, and I'm glad you brought that up. So one other aspect that's really important is I also have a degree in geology. And to me, it's, uh, it's almost a blessing where having a degree in geology and, and meteorology is, is the perfect combination for what we're doing, right? Because probable maximum precipitation, of course, is the theoretical upper limit of the most amount of rainfall that could occur at a given location at a given time of the year over a given area. Well, by, by nature, that's an incredibly rare event and something that doesn't happen very often. And, and you know, in, in the context of a human lifetime or last hundred years, it's very hard to conceptualize what that can mean and how those types of events can and do happen, yet we very rarely observe them. So having a background in geology as well, you know, kind of puts in context that aspect of time and space at a different scale, on an earth scale, on a geologic scale, that allows one to be able to better contextualize that those kind of events can and do happen. And so, um, you know, for, for, for me personally, having that kind of uh, background where I can look at the nuance of extreme weather events and extreme rainfall and know that um, Mother Nature is, can and do can and does do things that are pretty amazing if you give her enough time and enough opportunities, uh, kind of allows you to be able to look at the meteorological aspects in a way that helps define PMP in the way that's needed for design. And so what we see so often is, especially in the mining industry around the world, you know, a lot of times engineers or hydrologists will have to come up with some kind of PMP estimate. And usually they'll use a statistical method, the Hirschfeld methodology, something that doesn't necessarily need meteorological background to be able to be able to come up with a value. Of course, the problem is without that meteorological background, you, you really don't have a good understanding of the uncertainty, of the nuances, of what to look for, of what things might be right or wrong. And so our process is really to come in and take what's been done previously and improve it and build upon it and, and put it into a much more accurate detail from a meteorological perspective. So we, 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 we purposely try to get a very good understanding of the climatological, meteorological and topographical characteristics of a given location and how they interact with moisture and storm development, what storm pipes are appropriate for a given area, what's the seasonality of those rainfall events, and how all those things come into play to produce the most extreme of the extreme rainfall events. So, you know, having that meteorological background is what's required to be able to really understand and delve into those most extreme events where you have a limited observational record and you have to make a lot of um, judgments and subjective decisions to decide what's appropriate for a given location. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I was in the Atacama Desert in Chile, and we had a we were just leaving, and there was a torrential downpour uh, just after we left. It was starting when we were still there, um, I, and you can look on the internet and see clips of cars floating down the road it was one of the driest places on the planet right yeah. and you, you just wrote an interesting paper that was in the um, dam safety journal from the AS, uh, ASDSO and the, the title of it really um, made me think so the title of it's PMP estimation for mine tailings dams in data limited regions and the Atacama Desert where there's very little data especially on bigger events 
that would be a really good example of uh, where your approach would be very useful. Yeah, that's a great example. And it's one of those things where, you know, the Atacama Desert obviously is one of the driest places on earth. It may be the driest place on earth outside of maybe just the South Pole, but it's it's a place where there's several weather stations there that we dealt with where that didn't have rainfall for you know more than 10 years straight. It's, it's incredible. And so that's part of the process of our expertise is you, you know, when we talk to uh, the um, mining operations who were working with their Freeport McMoran and uh, trying to figure out what we could do for them, you know, that particular operation, it spans from the uh, high Andes, you know, up above 4,000 meters down to sea level on the Pacific coast. And you're going from an, from areas that might get, oh, 500 millimeters of rainfall in a year to areas that get zero in a year. And yet they have operations and, and uh, pipeline crossings and ditches and TSF and so on that have to deal with all the variable conditions in between there. And so our job, of course, is to obviously look at what's going on in the site, but also in analog regions around the site and try to pull any data we can and utilize uh, to understand how rainfall accumulates in time, space, and magnitude, where those events could be used or transposition to, how they can be used to inform not only PMP, but precip frequency climatologies and, and also you know mean annual accumulations and seasonal accumulations. And, you know, the Atacama, it's funny, when we first started talking about that study, it, you know, it's so dry there, we, you know, I said, hey, just call PMP zero and we're good. <laughs> yeah, but, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But as you noted, it's amazing where if, you know, a place like um, Tokopia, which is on the Pacific coast there, for example, um, you know, they, they might not get rain for several years, but then if they get one inch of rain in a day, it's total devastation, right? It's, it's, so it's all about context and nuance. In that yeah. area, just a little bit of rainfall, and, or say in Kalama, for example, will produce incredible amounts of runoff and devastation, amounts of rainfall that we would laugh at here in most places in the U.S. But for them, it's, it's, it's unbelievably uh, devastating. And to, have, to make sure that they have the proper infrastructure and water management uh, activities to handle that is very important. You know, and then you go to a place um, you know, we're doing a similar study in Indonesia, right, in the island of Papua New Guinea. And in that location, they get rain almost every day and they get an immense amount of rain all the time. And so they're dealing with a to the total opposite end of water management activities and runoff scenarios. And so our job, of course, is to be able to quantify those unique aspects of rainfall accumulation for a given location on a site-specific basis that takes into account exactly what happens there and what's appropriate for that region. And, and that's the fun part. You know, we get to deal with the whole gamut from the driest places on earth to the wettest, from deserts to mountains and everything in between. So it never gets boring, that's for sure. Yeah, and you can come across some interesting places. I worked in Colombia on a few projects and at least some of the areas, they have two rainy seasons and the other seasons, it also rains but just not quite as much. Uh, but I was I was working on a project where they had a one meter storm in a day. And it was pretty devastating, even though they're very accustomed to storms and precipitation in general, it did take out some bridges and it did do some damage. So even in a very rainy place, a meter of rain can be just devastating. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, really one of the fun things about what we do, I mean, I like to say, 
what I do, I would, I would be doing for free anyway. I mean, it's just something, it's so much fun and so interesting to be able to analyze the biggest storms that have ever occurred and provide information and data to, to engineers and hydrologists that wouldn't have it otherwise and see them apply it in real time and save lives and money and, and so on. It's just, it's just the, it's just the um, best combination of things for a meteorological weather geek like me, right? And, and exactly like you're saying, it's amazing when you get a look at some of these incredible events. You know, let's, we, you know we've, we've, we did a study that covered the entire state of Texas, for example, a few years ago. And there's a, there's a couple of places in Texas that have some of the world record rainfall, right? Around the balconies, escarpment, Edwards Plateau region, just north of San Antonio and west of Austin, where you can get 30, 40 inches of rain in 24 hours. You know, and then of course, Hurricane Harvey happens. And that's, uh, that's, that's by far the biggest volume of rainfall that's ever been observed in North America. Mm-hmm. You know, and so we get to delve into those storms and see how they happen and why they happen and where else they could potentially occur and how those would be applied to, uh, to you know, uh, mining operations or dam safety or nuclear safety. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the exciting part of uh, the process. And, and uh, we always look forward to that. And of course, the fun part for us is we get to sit back and watch those happen and analyze them and let somebody else have to deal with the runoff and the, the issues that go along with it. So it works yeah. out okay for us. Yeah, right. And as your article alludes to, ever since uh, some of the recent and devastating tailings failures, we're really under a microscope by society in general, and we really do need to keep doing a better and better job of, of all aspects of the design, including the, the storm designs and uh, your work product yeah. certainly helps out a lot there. A hundred percent. And, and, you know, I always like to say, I mean, one of the things that we learned from doing this for the last 20 years, it's an absolute team effort, right? When we do these studies, it's a collaboration with the hydrologists, the engineers, the owners, the clients, because it's incredibly important that as we're going through our processes, you know, reviewing background work, understanding what the mine has done before, how they've applied it, understanding what storms to use, understand how to adjust those storms and apply them. The, the engineers, the hydrologists need to be involved in every one of those steps so they can explicitly understand the judgments that's involved, the subjectivity, the uncertainty, the unknown, because when they get the numbers from us, we don't want them just to apply a number without any background or knowledge or context. We want them to understand, hey, here's this value I have. What engineering and design decisions should I be making understanding the, the uncertainty involved in the number, the, the, uh, the potential that it could be X amount higher or lower or what could happen in the future. I wanna make my design decision appropriately given that un- understanding of uncertainty. And of course, you know, as we mentioned a minute ago, there's a lot more uncertainty when you're doing a study, say in the Atacama Desert, versus when you're doing a study in up at Climax in Colorado, where you have good data and long period of record. And so you want right. the engineer and the hydrologist to have a good sense of how much accuracy those values provide, so they can make appropriate design decisions, and we can avoid those kind of failures. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. And do you find yourself doing much review work of other people's um, work efforts? Yeah, we, we do. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, one of the things that we do initially in any study we do is review what's been done before and, and see yeah. the updated. But um, we do some review, you know, right at this point, it's it's kind of to a point where we've done so many of these studies all over the world that um, people kind of come to us when they know they need to, uh, a better answer, a more accurate answer. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. And our, our work is getting reviewed all the time, which I think is a critical aspect of any of these processes is that there needs to be a proper oversight and independent review. You know, is, even though we've done hundreds of these, it's still important that somebody else is looking at what we're doing and asking the proper questions and making sure we've, we've done all the things necessary. Again, because of the critical infrastructure and the, the fact that the stuff we work on can't fail, um, it, it, it needs that, that review and oversight in any project. Does. So that's always a very important aspect of what we're doing for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it, it might be difficult for you to answer this, but do you have any success stories that you could share with us? Well, I guess it a little bit depends on how you define success, but for yeah. us, success, yeah, but for us, success is getting through the study, getting it completed, seeing our outputs applied through it, through the hydrologic modeling environment and seeing the infrastructure um, evaluated or designed against our values and finally having it accepted by the appropriate regulator, right? So, you know, we do, again, hundreds of studies, for example, let's just take the U.S., that are under the purview of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission or FERC. Anything with hydropower in the U.S. has it. And it doesn't do us any good to do a study and then not have FERC accept it. It doesn't do the licensee any good. It's a waste of time and money, right? So yeah. we, we want to make sure every one of our studies is, is accepted and utilized appropriately. Same thing for the nuclear side, same thing for the tailings and, and mining side. I mean, our goal is to, again, to me, it's a collaboration. It, it, it's not a, um, it's, it's never a constant, it's never like a, um, a battle back and forth. It's, it's a collaboration between ourselves the client, the engineers, the hydrologists, and the regulators to come to a reasonable and appropriate solution that's acceptable uh, to all. And that to me is a successful project. And that's what we're always aiming for in the end. Yeah, and that's, that's great. Yeah, do you have any uh, stories you'd like to share with us or uh, any? Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many, again, the, the, the nice thing about being a meteorologist is it's never boring, right? Every day is new and different. And every day, yeah, every, every day, Mother Nature is putting you in your place. The, the moment you think you know the answer and you've got it all figured out, she's pretty quick to tell you you're not quite as smart as you think you are. Yeah. And so it, it's one of those things that always keeps you humble, which I think is good. Um, you know, as a scientist, we should always be trying to, uh, you know, get closer to truth and find the answers, but always keep in the back of our mind that we're fallible. We don't know all the answers and we're, we're never going to know the exact truth. And the minute we think we understand it, things are going to change. So that, you know, just always being humbled by what Mother Nature can produce and do, I think is, is kind of the bigger story. And I think that gets lost sometimes in the scientific process and the numbers. And, and we get so, so, you know, um, we don't see the forest through the trees in a lot of cases. And we have to keep that big picture context of what we're dealing with in the uncertainty and the unknown. Um, and so there's, there's always fun things like that, but, uh, mm -hmm. every, the neat thing is every project is unique. I mean, it, I, I always say this where, you know, no matter where we are in the world doing work, there's always something unique in each project that we haven't maybe had to deal with ex explicitly before. I mean, Atacama, obviously, the fact that you, I mean, you're basically walking on a moonscape when you're yeah. in the middle of the Atacama desert. It's incredible. I mean, the, there, there's no there's no life there's no vegetation the rocks are all angular and there's just there's no soil development and then you go to another place um you know where we do a study like we've done up in alaska where you're at the foot of mount denali 
or Adama, not McKinley, and it's just a totally, you know, in yeah. the tundra, and you have a totally different aspect. So to me, the stories are the unique aspects of each place and unique challenges and, and, the, and the fun of overcoming those and figuring out how to develop the science to uh, something that can be applied and utilized in real time. Yeah, so if, you, if you're looking at a place that has no data because there has been no weather stations there for forever, uh, compared to a place that has weather stations but just very limited uh, precipitation events, do you treat both of those the same way? That's a great question. So the fundamental processing steps used to drive uh, the data sets is the same, but of course the outputs are dependent on the data availability. And you're, um, and so it's a matter of context in that sense. So again, a project where we have very limited data, you're going to have output, but the, the certainty around those and the uncertainty bounds around the values is much greater than an area where you have more data. Now, the good news is, um, really since the advent of the satellite era in the late 70s, early 80s, the, the entire globe is covered with data sets. And it just comes down to the quality, quantity, and resolution of those data sets. And oh. yeah, so, you know, it obviously the more meteorological observation stations we have and the longer period of record of a given location, uh, the, the more accurate the output's going to be. But nowhere in the world is it, do we not have enough data to do the work? It didn't just comes down to the uncertainty of the values based on the amount of data that we have. So, so we're very blessed to be in, we're kind of in a, to me, a kind of a golden era in that sense where we're at a nice, where we have a long enough coverage of remote sensing data sets from satellite and model reanalysis grids and so on that we have the world covered. And we also have a really good robust informational set of meteorological observations in most locations, not all. Um, that now have a decent period of record that can be utilized. So then it just comes down to, like I said, the, the nuance of um, uh, more or less accurate data and long period of record and how much or less that reduces uncertainty for a given result. Yeah, no, it's an interesting perspective. So just in general, what, what approach do you take when there is such little precipitation data like, like we we're saying in the Atacama? Sure, sure. That, and that's actually a good example because as you're probably familiar with, you know, short duration, high intensity events there uh, can be critical for runoff uh, scenarios and, and, and flooding in that region, right? Well, there's plenty of stations in that region that have daily records that go back pretty far, but there's very few stations that have hourly or sub-hourly records with any kind of accuracy or coverage or precision. And so one of the things you can do in that situation, of course, and this is where the meteorology comes in, you can absolutely look at for analog regions of the world that have a similar climate and topographical interaction. So, for example, for parts of Atacama where we need to get sub-hourly, you know, say five-minute, 15-minute runoffs uh, scenarios and precip frequency climatologies, we, we say, okay, where else in the world can we utilize information that's similar or an analog in, the, in meteorological setting and topographical setting in this region? Well, you know, an obvious area is a place like Death Valley, right? So, so you go and you look at, or, or Southern Arizona, you know, those kind of regions. And in those regions, we have a lot of uh, meteorological observations and, mm -hmm. and data sets that extend back 100, yeah. 100 years. And so now you develop an analog from those areas and utilize that for uh, what you would expect to happen in a similar situation for Atacama, for example. So, so you know, that's a, that's a common practice um, that can be done, but that takes a, a skilled and expert meteorological evaluation. Yeah. To be able to determine. yeah. yeah. 
yeah, so those are ways to fill in. And then of course, when you're doing a study, you're looking for um, areas that are called transposition regions that are of similar meteorological and topographic characteristics. In this case, you know, for Atacama as an example, you know, we're looking for regions that extended up into Southern Peru and down to about, oh, 25 or 26 degrees south latitude. So, you know, a few hundred kilometers north of Santiago, Chile. And yeah. it, that's that's really the whole Atacama Desert, right? And so in that whole region of, you know, hundreds of thousands of square kilometers, you can usually find a few observation stations that you can utilize in the process as well. So it's a combination of, of both of those pieces. Yeah. And like you were saying, the, the analogs, it's, it's only an analog. It's not a replacement for you. You can't just take a square peg and put it in a round hole. That's, that's, exactly right. that's why you say it takes some judgment and experience to be able to figure out how to use that. A hundred percent. You hit that. You hit that nail on the head. That's exactly right. And otherwise, you know, you you could run into some big problems because there are nuances and differences between those two regions. And what yeah. you're looking for is similarity of patterns and data to what the information you have over your site is. And then, of course, you do a lot of testing and a lot of work with the hydrologist and engineer to see if it makes sense when you start to apply the values. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Good. Well, Bill, I'm really glad that we've had this uh, time to chat. One of the reasons that I have this podcast is to make myself a little bit smarter. And uh, thanks for making me a little bit smarter today. And I'll definitely uh, keep your business in mind. Tell, tell people how they can get a hold of you. Uh, what is your company website? Sure. Yeah, it's a, you got to type a lot, but I hope we can handle it now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Again, it's uh, appliedweatherassociates.com. So you have to spell out all three words and yeah. come up easily. And again, uh, we're, uh, hopefully you can tell from this that I, I love talking about this stuff. So even if you're just curious and want to talk about weather and how it affects uh, mining operations and some of these cool places in the world, feel free to reach out to me. I'm always happy to uh, uh, talk about this stuff. I think my family gets pretty bored of hearing about it. So I'm always happy to <laughs> spill it out on, on other, others that are willing to listen. And uh, we'd be happy to, to talk to anybody and see if we can we can help out. It's what we love to do, and it's it's always good to, to provide better data uh, to, to people who need it and see them apply it in, in ways that help help them and help uh, others. Yeah, that's that's great, and uh, hopefully something will turn up there. And I I think I remember seeing in your qualifications that you've been an on-air personality or, or meteorologist. Yeah, I did. I did have a uh, about a ten year stint of uh, being able to talk about the weather on TV, and, yeah. uh, and that was a lot of fun. <laughs> I think you might be able to tell I like talking about the weather. So right. any medium that allows that to happen is a is a good thing. So I was able to be on air in several stations across the country. So the the other day I was watching uh, the the news, and the weatherman came on, and he was talking about an earthquake. So in your opinion, is an earthquake a meteorological event or not? <laughs> well, technically speaking, I would say no, but there's a lot of people out there that have some pretty interesting theories about the yeah. connection of uh, different meteorological events and, and, uh, and earthquakes. Uh, yeah. so, I, so I could be totally wrong on that, but that's certainly <laughs> isn't why. Uh, you think it's hard to predict weather, just try to predict an earthquake. Well, it, you know, it's not too dissimilar. In earthquakes, we have a maximum credible earthquake similar to a PMP. And there is recurrence yeah. relationships. That's yeah. exactly right. The funny thing is you guys get off easy that 
the MCE or maximum credible uh, credible earthquake usually is about a 10,000 year return. So yeah. When we yeah. do our yeah, when we do our probability assessment of PMP and turn the deterministic values into the probabilistic realm, we're usually in the 10 to the minus six, 10 to the minus seven, 10 to the minus eight yeah. uh, realm. So yeah, yeah, a lot, lot less frequent. Thank goodness. Right, right. Yeah, but point taken with the earthquakes because nobody in their right mind predicts yeah. uh, you know 30 percent chance of earthquake tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you guys make meteorologists look good. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, Bill, do you have any uh, words of wisdom or, or parting uh, words to share with us before we part ways? Well, the main thing is, and hopefully this theme has come across, I mean, in any of these a uh, applications in science, whether it's meteorology, geology, geotech, whatever it is, you know, to me, we always have to stay humble and know that we don't, we don't know everything. We don't know as much as we think we do. And therefore, it's always critical that we're uh, trying to learn as much as we can, delve into the data, the facts, and let the data talk to us, right? Um, the numbers are what the numbers are if we've done the process right. It's important to have the collaboration between disciplines and that independent review is also incredibly important. And so to me, it's just, you know, Mother Nature and science is always humbling and it's always fun trying to figure out what the truth is. But just realize that we're probably never going to always be there all the way. And, and that should keep you in the right place and right frame of mind as you're going through these analyses. Yeah, very, very good. Uh, yeah, very wise words to live by, I would say. And the same thing goes yeah. with geotechnical engineering where, you know, we also deal with Mother Nature and it's also unpredictable. And it seems like every time I try to outcast Mother Nature, Mother Nature teaches me to be a little more humble next time. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Well, Bill, this has been great, and I know you've got a busy day, and I uh, appreciate you coming on, and uh, hope to catch up with you again sometime soon. Yeah, Brian, I appreciate it. Appreciate it, and this is uh, good, good that you're doing this for the industry. Hopefully, this is a, a fun topic for people, and look forward to, to talking more when we get a chance. Certainly an important topic. All right. Thanks again, Bill, and have a great day. You too, Brian. Thanks a lot. All right. Well, that's it. I'm Brian, and this is Behind the Scenes with Brian. Until next time, keep on rocking. <laughs>